half a century ago, when I was a boy on the Lower East Side of New York City, uh, our favorite form of entertainment in the winter uh, was roasting potatoes at sidewalk fires. I think it's since become known as roasting Mickeys, although I don't remember quite using that phrase. In any case, we used to have a rule that uh, before a boy, or a girl, I suppose, could um, join us at one of these fires with his or her potatoes and put them into the fire, the boy or the girl had to bring what we used to call his or her license. And the word license in those days meant firewood. It was extremely difficult to get firewood. And so before anybody could um, put his potatoes into the fire and stand around the fire, he had to bring his license or some wood. I have a feeling that in any kind of a discussion of this nature, um, it would be a good idea for me to present my license um, because I'm going to say some things about book reviewing, play reviewing, and so on uh, that might sound um, a bit presumptuous if they were uttered by someone who um, had not had some experience in the field. Uh, I have published since 1937 about 30 books, uh, 18 of them novels, nine volumes of short stories, some books of essays and travel, and about seven plays, and I've had those seven plays produced, so I've had reviews on them. And after 33 years of reading um, reviews on um, approximately 30 books, I've come to certain conclusions that are at least interesting to me. Um, I might point out, by the way, that when you publish a book, you don't get merely the six or seven reviews that you get when you produce a play. Um, book reviews come in from all over the country. Some of them are, of course, syndicated, so you might get 10 or 12 copies of the same review. Uh, but by and large, you get about 50 or 60 reviews, and if you multiply that by 30 books or so, you probably, it comes out, if my arithmetic is good, to about 1,500 reviews. Um, my license for this discussion is very simply that um, after 33 years of reading reviews and reading 1,500 of them, I still feel, or rather I now feel very strongly, that the basic relationship between um, a book reviewer or um, a play reviewer and the author is that of a knife to a throat. Um, there's no getting away from the fact that there is a basic enmity there, no matter what the reviewer may want you to believe and no matter how polite the author may be. Um, now, if the, when two people enter into that kind of a relationship, willy-nilly, I don't mean that I particularly want to have a relationship with book reviewers, but the system imposes it on me, um, it seems to me almost elementary good manners that um, the adversaries should know who they are. In almost every other uh, activity that human beings engage in where they are at odds with each other, um, they always know their adversaries. Boxers, fighters always know who their fighter, the, the man is who they're fighting. Fencers know, runners know, hockey players know, baseball players know, pitchers anyway. Um, but in the matter of book reviewing and play reviewing, it's a peculiar thing. Um, nobody knows where reviewers come from or who they are. Um, in the case of a Supreme Court appointment, for example, uh, as we recently learned from watching the spectacle of the Senate versus the White House in the cases of Clement Hainsworth and Harold G. Carswell, um, the adversaries have a right to go at each other and decide who is going to fight this thing out. This is not so in, um, in book reviewing and in play reviewing. Nobody ever knows where reviewers come from. They never have to present any credentials. 
um, one day you pick up the New York Times or the Cleveland Plain Dealer or the uh, St. Petersburg Times and you find your book by somebody named Joe Smith. You never heard of Joe Smith before. You don't know who Joe Smith is, what his credentials are for sitting in judgment on you. No newspaper, no publication in this country um, seems to feel it's necessary. Uh, at regular intervals, the New York Times, for instance, changes its drama, uh, drama critic, and nobody really knows what the man who is now going to sit in judgment on the New York, on the New York theater and on playwrights uh, has the credentials or has the right to do it. Um, we all know, of course, that um, most reviewers are creative people, Monquet. Um, a man who could write a novel, a man who could write a play, would jolly well write the novel and jolly well write the play. He wouldn't sit around criticizing other people's plays and other people's novels. Therefore, um, there is a sort of basic resentment and antagonism which is created from the very beginning. Um, uh, what you have is a young man or a young woman who is trying to make his mark in a field where um, he who shouts loudest is the one who is going to be heard. Uh, when I was a boy, the two most famous sports, uh, sports writers in the world, in America anyway, probably in the world, were um, Westbrook Pegler, this was before he became a columnist, and um, uh, Grantland Rice. And they represented the two schools of re reviewing sports. Uh, Grantland Rice was the gee whiz school. He loved everything, and he, he was a boy standing on tiptoe to life and how marvelous sports were. Uh, Westbrook Pegler was the on nut school. He just disliked everything, and uh, he always had something unpleasant in a witty way to say about the sport he was viewing. Uh, it doesn't take a young book reviewer or play reviewer very long to catch on to the fact that if he's going to make his mark in this insane field, um, he's not going to get anywhere uh, if he keeps liking things. Um, People don't remember um, sweetness and light, but they do remember invective. And if he can say something wittily cutting about a book or a play, it will be repeated by people, and his reputation will be well on its way. Um, the trouble with all this is that the reviewers, that the, the work that the writer has done goes down the drain for the sake of an epigram by the uh, reviewer. Um, Recently, uh, the Times put on two young men. I've never met them, but um, it is perfectly obvious that they are pursuing this course. There's been a good deal of grumbling among, among uh, uh, authors. Uh, there always is, by the way. Um, and yet nobody really knows, none of the people who are being judged by these uh, two reviewers has any idea who they are. Um, we don't know where they came from. We don't know what their credentials are. We don't know what justifies their sitting in judgment on other people, but they do, and they do it in an extremely caustic way. Now, the Times happens to be the most important um, medium for reviews in this country. And in the case of a book, for example, you can get 99 marvelous reviews all around the country, and indeed in other publications in this city, although there aren't so many left anymore. But if the Times gets a smart aleck, nasty review on its book page, the book is dead. Similarly with the uh, theater. Um, this particular publication happens to have that particular weight. In a curious way, by the way, 
it doesn't matter who the reviewer is. In this particular case, what carries the weight is the New York Times, as has been demonstrated over and over again in the last few years. They keep changing their reviewers in the drama section and in the book review section, and it doesn't matter who's writing the reviews. Um, they are still uh, the most important medium. During a recent publication, uh, 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 after reading a review of a book recently, um, a friend of mine in London uh, sent me a cable in which he said, I see that Martin Borman is alive and well and working happily uh, in, the book, in the book review section of the New York Times. So this general feeling that um, the, book re the, the, the author is a, is, is a victim of um, a man or a woman um, whose sole concern is not for art or for literature, but his sole concern is for building his own reputation. Um, it's, uh, it's fascinating that um, in the case of the news magazines, for example, um, where the reviews are anonymous and are not signed, at any rate, uh, they're not signed in Time magazine, and they didn't used to be signed in Newsweek, although now they are, um, a false impression is always created, it seems to me, on the part of the reader. He gets the impression when he reads a review of a book or a play in Time magazine that um, there has been a board meeting. Um, Hedley Donovan or whoever is running the thing is sitting up at the head of the table and the, all the staff members are sitting around and he says, well, gentlemen, we now come to the play by Mr. Jones or we now come to the play by Mr. Smith. I take it you've all read it. I take it you've all seen it. Uh, will you please tell us what you think and then we'll have a vote. And you get the impression, if you're a reader of Time magazine, that they do have this vote and they decide Mr. Jones's book is good or Mr. Jones's book is bad and then they assign, assign a reviewer to review it. I need hardly tell you that this is n nothing like this happens at all. Um, there are people who feel, and I'm one of them, that an anonymous review is very much like receiving um, an anonymous phone call or, or an anon anonymous letter in the mail. Um, there's something dirty about it, especially if it's a nasty review, and in uh, most of these media you can pr be pretty certain that usually it will be nasty. Um, uh, the other thing that is puzzling and irritating about book reviewing is that there are certain obvious things which nobody pays any attention to. For example, if a man is going to sit in judgment on um, a novelist or a playwright, ideally the man who was sitting in judgment should have read everything that was ever written ever since movable type was invented by Gutenberg. And um, the man who sits in judgment on someone who was um, has written a play should ideally have seen or read every single play that was ever produced or ever published. Obviously, this is silly. Uh, no human being could do that. But reviewers, unfortunately, have a tendency to create the impression that they have. For example, um, a reviewer once told me, we were having a drink together. I don't usually drink with reviewers, but this was someone I ran into on a program and we went out and had a drink. And uh, uh, he said to me, we were talking about the techniques of reviewing, and I was puzzled by something he had said about um, comparing a book he had read to the work of Charles Dickens. Uh, Dickens happens to be one of my favorite authors, and I do, knew, do know a great deal about his work. And it seemed to me uh, that this book reviewer, in comparing the book he was reviewing with the work of Dickens, had chosen the wrong novel to compare it with. 
and I said, um, I asked him why he had chosen Dombey and Son. And he said, well, you know, I haven't read all of Dickens. I haven't read all of Thackeray. I haven't read all of uh, uh, Trollope and so on. But he said, as a reviewer, you cannot allow yourself to be put into the position of letting the public know that you have not read all these books. Therefore, what you do is you choose the book that you have read and you imply in your review that this is the only book by Dickens that is worth reading and that is worth coming, commenting on and that in this particular case um, suits the occasion. So having read only one novel by Dickens, Dombey and Son, he brought that into his review of this other man's work and implied clearly in the review that um, uh, he had read all of Dickens and therefore he had the credentials to, to discuss Dickens in connection with this man's work. I asked this reviewer if he felt that was dishonest. He thought for a moment and he said, yes, I suppose it is. But then he said, aren't we all dishonest in our daily activities? And um, since I didn't want to pose as uh, having been cut from a finer bolt of cloth than the gentleman um, with whom I was talking, I said, yes, I suppose we all are. It did not seem to me, nonetheless, to be an adequate answer to uh, uh, the work of a book, of a book reviewer uh, or a play reviewer. I don't think that a judge sitting on the bench reviewing, let us say, the case of a man who was accused of some crime um, has the right to imply that he, the judge, is an expert on that particular field, that he has read all the law uh, pertaining to it, and that his judgment is the seasoned judgment of a man who knows everything there is to know on that subject. In actual fact, uh, most judges do make an effort to learn all there is. They look up the citations of previous cases and so on, and usually try to form uh, a balanced opinion. But book reviewers do not have time to do that or don't want to take the time to do that. Uh, I once had a book of short stories published several years ago, um, and it was very favorably reviewed uh, in all the media except in the New York Times, the book review section. It was very favorably reviewed, by the way, in the Daily Times, but it was not reviewed very favorably in the New York Times, the Sunday section. And I was puzzled because the reviewer built his whole argument around the fact that uh, I had performed some, uh, done a dishonest thing. The book was called, um, the volume of short stories was called uh, My Father Sits in the Dark. Uh, Thirty years before this, I had published a volume of short stories called uh, The Horse That Could Whistle Dixie. The reviewer of My Father Sits in the Dark, for some reason which I cannot quite understand, said, I didn't know this reviewer, by the way, um, said uh, that he could not see how any man could hold up his head in public when he does something so dishonest as publishing two books 30 years apart with exactly the same titles. Obviously, I assume that he had made an honest mistake because I had never published two books with the same titles. Um, he had he'd either been thinking of somebody else or he, he had confused the titles, although it would have been very, very simple to look at the card page on the inside of the book and see all my titles and he would have realized he was making a mistake. But no, he wanted to dash off this piece of invective and he did. Um, I asked my publisher to um, call this to the attention of the editor of the New York Times book section because it was an error 
and um, it's the sort of error that might hurt a person because it implied a commercial uh, venality. Uh, my publisher did call it, a, the attention, to call it to the attention of the editor in, of the New York Times, and the Times treated it, as all book review sections do, in pretty much the way that we could have expected. They just disregarded it completely. Um, the whole business of should there be or should there not be book reviews is or, or even play reviews is constantly being discussed. Um, I have never formed any firm and positive conclusions about it, but I've done a bit of talking about it with my fellow writers, and I am absolutely astounded um, at the sort of timidity on the part of writers and playwrights about reviewers. Um, I once sat on a panel with a group of very, very distinguished writers. I'd rather not mention their names at the moment, although you, can, you have my assurance that you would know every one of them. It was seven or eight of us. And um, they were facing a group of 2,000 book reviewers who had come in from all over the country, and we were sitting in a ballroom at the Biltmore Hotel. They had come in for the National Book Awards, and um, the uh, Authors Guild had arranged this panel discussion. And uh, every uh, author on that dais was asked <coughs> some que the same question, um, which was, uh, this particular question was, um, do you feel as a writer that you have ever been helped by a bad review? And I was astounded to hear every one of these writers, one at a time, say, in effect, well, um, I think that if one reads a bad review carefully, it is possible that one could find in it some flaw that the reviewer has pointed out in the author's technique or in his knowledge of portraying character or in his narrative ability and so on. And having had this pointed out to you, um, uh, it might be something that's stuck in your mind from then on and uh, you might find this useful in doing your next book. I don't think this is true. I think Basically, um, the sound attitude is this. I find I like good reviews, and I find I detest bad reviews. And it does me no good whatsoever when I read a bad review of something I have written to be told that the author of the review is an absolutely brilliant scholar. Uh, by the same token, it does not diminish my pleasure at all in reading a good review of something I have written to be told that the author of the review is an absolute idiot. The point being that um, reviews have a psychological effect on the writer. Um, every morning, the writer has to get up, go to his desk, pick up his pencil, face his yellow pad, and get some words down on paper. Um, if he reads a good review of something he has written before that, um, it makes him feel good, and he glows. And the machinery of his creative work, his work creative work machinery, is oiled and greased, and it goes along smoothly, um, or at any rate, more smoothly than it would have. But if he reads a venomous piece about his work, um, there's just no question about the fact that he's been dealt a psychic blow, and the uh, capacity to go ahead with you, the work you have in hand at the moment, is diminished. Therefore, I feel that to be completely honest, we must all prefer good reviews to bad reviews, and never mind what the source is. Um, the suggestion comes up every now and again 
since we know that most of the people who do the reviewing are, have come out of the woodwork, so to speak, from somewhere. We don't know who they are. We don't know what their credentials are. We don't know what the publication for which they work, what criteria the publication used in choosing this man to sit in judgment on other people. Um, it seems to me perhaps the best way out of the dilemma is to have no reviews at all. I'm not quite sure how this whole apparatus of reviewing bo books and reviewing plays came about. Uh, I would be perfectly happy, speaking for myself, to take my chances with the public. Um, I would ask no more of my publisher than that he um, take a reasonably sized announcement ad saying, um, on Monday, October 3rd, we are about to publish, we will publish um, a new novel by Jerome Weidman called Up in Daisy's Room. Mr. Weidman is the author of such and such, such and such, and such and such. We think you will like this book. We hope you will go to your bookstore and buy it. Um, if a few people go to the bookstore and buy it, um, and if the people who buy it like it, they will tell their friends about it. And this is what is known as word of mouth, and the book, I hope, would sell. I think the same would probably be true of the theater. I remember a number of years ago, um, a play opened during a newspaper strike. I'm not going to mention the name of the play, uh, but I think most people who were around at the time will remember the incident. There were no reviews um, because of the newspaper strike. Um, and it was before the technique of going on t the air and on television with reviews came about. So uh, the people who saw the play on opening night loved it, told their friends, and the play ran along for about six weeks as a huge smash hit. Then the newspaper strike ended, and all the reviewers hurried around, read the, um, saw the play, and wrote reviews saying that the play was terrible. Didn't make any difference. By this time, thousands of people had seen the play, thousands of people had told their friends, and the, the play, which was a musical, by the way, ran on for almost three years. So um, I'm a little ambivalent about whether or not we need reviews at all. Um, I think if the publications that um, hire reviewers were fair with, the, with their readers and would publish something about these reviewers and say, Mr. So-and-so um, went to City College. Uh, he did his graduate work at so-and-so. He did his apprentice work at thus and so. Uh, he has reviewed for the following publications. Uh, we feel as editors of this paper that uh, this man's credentials are sound and um, he will be honest in sitting in judgment on his fellow men. Uh, uh, rather on uh, the people whose books read. Perhaps that would solve the problem. In any case, um, since there really is no solution, I don't think because no newspapers would agree to that, um, I can say only this, that um, as for having learned something from book reviewers, I can say yes, I have learned something. Once um, I read a review of one of my novels in which the reviewer pointed out that on every page people were constantly lighting cigarettes. He had never read a novel in which so many cigarettes were smoked. From that moment on, I went back and looked up the novel, and he was absolutely right. From that moment on, I personally have never smoked another cigarette, nor has any one of my characters.